You're listening to Review and Preview. And welcome back to Review and Preview, folks. I'm your host for tonight's show, Kyle Russo, alongside my engineer here, Andrew Scarpacci. Andrew, we got an action-packed, loaded show uh, for our viewers here on Facebook Live tonight, as well as our listeners to our podcast here on the anchor.fm slash review and preview. Uh, If you want to participate in tonight's show, make sure to call in at 516-299-2790. Again, if you want to participate and ask your questions and hear them answered, Here on Review and Preview tonight, folks, make sure to call in at 516-299-2790. We are also on Instagram and Twitter as well, at Review and Preview. All right, Andrew, we're going to get right into it. The MLB, obviously, we live in the New York area. We're going to jump right into it and talk about the New York teams. Uh, Yankees to start off. So, obviously, in breaking news, uh, Luis Severino has been shut down uh, for the rest of spring training obviously due to a forearm issue, that people are saying that occurred in the ALCS of last year. So that uh, brings a lot of question to me personally and how good this Yankees medical staff is knowing that this injury had occurred uh, as far as four months ago and allowing uh, Severino to go into the spring training and now re-injure his forearm and have issues that could progressively lead into him being out in the beginning of the season. His timetable for return is now in question. Uh, yeah, who so, knows where he, what he's been doing over the offseason now that he's coming back throwing. As pretty much as soon as he started throwing, he re-aggravated again. So di- didn't take the proper precaution in the offseason to make sure he was ready to go. Absolutely. Uh, another pitcher as well, James Paxton being diagnosed about two or two weeks ago, maybe a week ago, with James Paxton being out for the next three, four months as well uh, due to injuring his uh, arm as well. So he will definitely miss time during the beginning of the regular season. Hopefully not too much extended a period of time, but somebody else as spring training has only been in session now for about a week or two. Aaron Judge is the newest of Yankees to go on the IL. He has been shut down as well for spring training with an injured uh, or a sore right shoulder, something that he's been dealing with for a long time during the course of his career. Um, so... This is not this is not good for the Yankees. I, I understand people, especially me as a Yankees fan and other Yankees fans talking about it, how oh the Yankees were able to overcome adversity once and you know they'll be able to do it again, obviously alluding to last season in twenty nineteen, where the Yankees had about thirty plus players throughout the course of the season go on the IL and you say to yourself, Well, they were able to win a hundred plus games last season and do it. They were able to hit uh a record or Second best record all time uh, because the Twins obviously said it with a new home run record at 307. The Yankees hit 306 last year. Uh, They'll be able to have no problems this season. But I'm a person that's disagreeing with that statement. I'm saying that it's going to cause a lot of problems, especially with the pitching. Obviously, newly acquired Garrett Cole and Jordan Montgomery coming back from his Tommy John, which had happened back in 2018. You're now relying on a rotation which consists of Garrett Cole, Masahiro Tanaka and Jordan Montgomery, maybe, maybe if you want to throw in there, maybe a J.A. Happ, but... Jonathan uh, Lewisica is probably going to have to step up big this year. Maybe, maybe, but I'm not even talking about those guys. Those main three that I just alluded to are probably going to be the main guys, but what's going to happen now, and people are going to see, 
something that's probably in the back of all Yankees fans' minds, all Yankees management's minds, is what are we going to do now with Garrett Cole? Because you know Garrett Cole is going to be starting opening day, on opening day, but what are they going to do when he has is now going to be forced to play maybe two, maybe even three times a week now? Because now you have a rotation solely of three pitchers, and you're going to have to rely heavily on your ace because he's probably has the as far as Yankees management goes, that's probably the guy that you have the least amount of concern with when it comes to what he's capable of doing. Tanaka, yes, is a great pitcher, but most of the time he's been known for his playoff performance. This is not necessarily regarding the regular season. Regular season, he's just an average pitcher. Jordan Montgomery missing a year and a half of baseball. That's gonna get. It's gonna take some time for him to get back into uh, baseball shape, pitching in the MLB once again. It's gonna take him some time. So you're going to have to rely heavily on Garrett Cole. So hopefully these injuries to James Paxton and Severino aren't that significant. Because last year, a lot of the injuries came from position player guys, not necessarily pitching. So you're able to call up guys and you were able to get lucky with guys like Mike Ford and Mike Talkman and Cameron Mabin, uh, even Clint Frazier at some times, who was able to step in and fill the roles of those guys uh, who were injured in the outfield and injured in the infield and uh, replace them and perform at a very, very high level. But now with the pitching, the Yankees already had minimalistic depth when it came to that position. Now you have even less. And I think that's going to be a major, major problem going into the beginning of the season. Andrew, what do you believe is going to be uh, the outcome of this situation? I would say the last thing you would ever do is have Garrett Cole go on four days rest or even worse because you just signed him for over $300 million for nine years. You need him as healthy as possible as possible for as long as possible. So I would say they're probably going to go some bullpen days, maybe some people that are going to go three, four innings at a time, like someone like Loisiga, that's what he would kind of do. And then, you, because you can't have Garrett Cole go all out this early in the year at just starting out for the next nine years. It's not going to go good in the long run. No, absolutely. You're 100% right. And something that had been addressed in training camp today, actually by Aaron Boone, the manager for the Yankees, um, so a question is brought about, obviously, due to the lack in uh, pitching depth due to the injuries of guys like James Paxton and Luis Severino. Do you go to the minors early and bring up a guy in Debbie Garcia, potentially who's the Yankees' best pitching prospect at the moment? Uh, and Aaron Boone spoke upon this and said that one of the stories coming out of camp to me is pitching now, and we're seeking a number of young arms and even some veteran arms that we brought in here kind to kind of emerge, and guys that you can kind of dream on and get excited about. And he said that Debbie Garcia is certainly one of those guys, and he feels like he's in a good spot right now to potentially uh, be a long-term guy for the Yankees in the future. And I don't know necessarily how I feel about this just because of, you know, he had a great season last season down in the minors. But to bring him up as early as April potentially and May potentially, it's going to cause a lot of issues. It's going to cause a lot of issues because you bring him up and then he gets shell-shocked and then may never have the chance to come back up again due to the fact that these, the only reason why he's being brought up is not because he's ready, but because the Yankees had no choice but to bring him up. But that'll be an issue that the Yankees will have to deal with for the beginning of the season at least. And it's something that I don't think necessarily will be discussed until it is determined how long Luis Severino will be out for. Because if Luis Severino's out for a long extended period of time, I could see the Yankees going out and signing veteran guys that have yet to uh, be claimed yet off free agency or potentially bring up a guy like Debbie Garcia. But 
if you count on a four-man rotation until Paxton gets back, I think that's what the uh, Yankees will wind up doing. Uh, I don't think you would call Devi Garcia up in the beginning of the season. It's probably going to be a last-minute scenario if guys maybe like Luis Sessa or Chad Green or Jay Happ, if you have them trying to go three, four innings at a time, and they can't do it no matter what, and it's just not a great start for the season, then you bring him up to see what he does, maybe. But I think they're going to try and go to some of those old, reliable guys that are have always been mediocre, maybe see if any of them can step up big while Paxton and Sevy are gone. So, Andrew, obviously two weeks into spring training already, and it's not looking necessarily uh, the best of outcomes for a season with a lot of aspiration, you know, signing Garrett Cole to the biggest contract uh, in baseball history. For uh, pitchers. For pitchers, at least. Um, You know, the season has high aspirations, and the Yankees, who are a team that uh, since 2017 have been competing, just falling short of the World Series the last couple of years, um, do you believe the Yankees will be able to overcome this injury bug like they were able to last year? I do. They have a strong, as many people don't believe, they have a strong um, farm system. They have pieces they can call up. They have people that they can see what they can do. If it doesn't go well early on, they can go back to some old reliable guys, see how they can do. But I, I think while it's going to definitely be harder than last year because it's the kind of thing that they did last year usually doesn't work two years in a row. But I can definitely see them being able to push through as long as they have to to get to where they need to go and capture the division to push through the playoffs. I can definitely see that occurring as well, uh, knowing that you have solid guys down in the minors like a Mike Talkman, a Mike Ford to potentially come up um, for the Yankees, you know, filling that outfield position for Mike Talkman, uh, obviously because another one of the guys that got injured this past offseason, Aaron Hicks, who had Tommy John, so he's going to be out an extended period of time as well. Uh, so Mike Talkman might be your everyday center fielder unless uh, I'm trying to imagine a rotation out in the outfield right now because you wouldn't change Judge. Judge would consistently be in the right field, obviously, if he is healthy to start opening day. You'd probably have Gardner John Carlo- left. Yeah, you'd probably have Gardner and left, maybe Stanton as, DH. as a DH. Left unless you want to move then. Gardner to center field potentially because right now who would be the starting opening day Yankees center fielder at the moment. It would probably definitely be Mike Talkman. Stanton just doesn't have the same mobility that he had when he was with the Marlins. He's got to stay at a DH spot. And they have a lot of deft pieces that they have for the outfield. Another guy similar to the offensive version of Davey Garcia, Estavion Florio, we've been hearing for a few years now. Um, he's been in the Yankees farm system for a while. He he might get called up if someone like maybe Frazier doesn't produce or if Talkman doesn't produce. We could see what maybe he can do in center field. I don't see that necessarily happening, but it's definitely not impossible. No, I absolutely agree. You know, I take the standpoint of, you know, you don't want to have players injured and you don't want to bank on the fact that, oh, they'll be able to repeat what they were able to do last season. But as long as this is my standpoint, as long as Judge, Sanchez, and Glaber are healthy, now, on top of LeMahieu, because LeMahieu did have a really, really good, fantastic season last season and was so close to coming home with the MVP award for the AL, um, as long as those four guys are healthy, I'm going to be okay as a Yankees fan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep, sleep nights. I will sleep nights knowing that those guys are healthy because as long as those guys are healthy – the Yankees can compete offensively, 
And knowing what they have in the bullpen, as long as a pitcher is able to give at least five or six innings, the bullpen should be able to get the job done, whether it's Tommy Canely or is it Aroldis Chapman, potentially. Zach Britton. Zach Britton. Chad Green. Chad, uh, Chad Green. As long as those four guys are healthy, I think the Yankees will be in a fine position. But already starting off the season, Aaron Judge is not healthy. You know, hopefully he's able to recover soon. Good thing they have a month to figure it out. I don't think it was anything major with his injury. I think they were just shutting him down uh, for spring training just to— Yeah, to to avoid re-aggravating anything. To avoid re-aggravating anything. You know, Aaron Judge, you know, his roster spot is not in question. You don't have to have him play in meaningless spring training games. Obviously, it does help to get back into baseball shape. Not that he's not in shape, but to get back into that baseball field, back into uh, playing once again because he's uh, obviously been off since October. Um, But uh, everything in my mind will be okay for the most part. Uh, A guy that we were talking about a little bit, or position that we were talking about a little bit, was first base, the first base situation. And obviously, if the season was to start today, Luke Voigt, would be the starting first baseman. But considering the team did not sign guys like Edwin Encarnacion back, uh, they moved on for Greg Bird. He signed a minor league deal, I believe, with the Texas Rangers, I believe it was. Do we see anybody potentially that could play first base besides D.J. LeMahieu? Uh, Mike Ford. Well, Mike Ford could definitely play that, but any potential other options? Because I've been hearing word uh, from training camp that Miguel and Duhar might move around a little bit position-wise, because Aaron Boone had stated that it's basically Gio Urshela's job at third base to lose. So that, to me, in my mind, that puts question, you know, will Miguel and Duhar be a long-term option for this team in the future? Because, excuse me, if Gio Urshela is going to be your third base guy, and you have a guy like you just stated uh, in Giancarlo Stanton playing the DH position, where does Miguel and Duhar come into play? Well, that is another possibility. Maybe... If someone's if someone else gets hurt or you want to give someone else a day off, Stanton can play left in and Duhar can DH. And then um there's a lot of options right now that the Yankees have with around the infield. Now that Didi's gone, Torres becomes the everyday shortstop, which makes LeMahieu the everyday second baseman. And at first you have options. You can go Void or Ford, who's ever hot, who's not at the time. Same thing with third. If Gio Urshela goes in a slump and Duhar's gonna pick that position right up. Granted, Urshela is a much better defender. And probably a more consistent hitter, but you if you want power, if the Yankees are struggling with home runs, which I don't think will necessarily be the issue, but Andujar has much more power than Urshela. So eighth inning, you need a home run, why not put Andujar up there if like there's no one on base? If and, and then if he produces, then he can get then he can get an everyday spot after if he takes that pinch hitter role. No doubt, no doubt. Or maybe even potentially um due to the injury bug that is hitting the Yankees at the moment, uh can we potentially see maybe the Yankees using some of these assets that they have, guys like Clint Frazier, guys like a Miguel Andujar that might have lost a roster spot, uh, at least on this team, because they are fantastic Major League Baseball players. You know, Clint Frazier, he has his woes when it comes to being a defensive outfielder, but you you give him consistent batting time, he'll average around 270, and he'll smack about 20, 25 home runs consistently. Uh, so he could definitely be a DH on another team uh, and maybe over time become a consistent outfielder when it comes to defensive, uh, defense-wise. But um, Miguel Andujar, same thing as well. Miguel Andujar competing for the Rookie of the Year in his first year with Labor Torres and Shohei Otani. Obviously, Otani coming out uh, with that trophy, the Rookie of the Year, a couple years back. 
But Miguel and Duhar was averaging a batting average of like 315, smacked about 30 home runs. Um, and was just an overall great player when it came to offensive batting production. But uh, again, a defensive liability. And I think that's really where this choice has come down to because not that Gio Urshela is uh, a better player, but he's better overall when it comes to the defensive aspect on top of the fact that they did average around the same numbers batting average-wise, not necessarily power-wise, but batting-wise. So my question to you, Andrew, is could we potentially see the Yankees maybe moving some of these pieces that don't necessarily have a spot on this team at the moment for another pitcher? I don't know if anyone's going to particularly want Andujar as of now. He was hurt for an entire year. He showed he really wasn't great defensively. He did improve as the year went on. But people want Clint Frazier. They've wanted him since 2016 when he got brought up. And they can definitely get a lot of pieces for Clint Frazier. And I think that might be the way to go. Because he's 25 and he's still not a full-time player for the... For the kind of talent he has, he deserves to go somewhere, maybe back to Cleveland they were talking about during the offseason, where he will become a full-time player and produce at that level that he's capable of. Yeah, I think even back uh, it was back in 2018, the summer of 2018, or maybe the summer of 2017, if it's uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, actually, was, yeah, I think it might have been, um, yeah, it might have been 2017. Uh, but the Yankees, uh, one of the reasons why they didn't complete because uh, they were in negotiations with the Pittsburgh Pirates at the time for pitcher and Garrett Cole. And what was uh, reported was that the Yankees uh, were willing to give away their top prospect at the time, pitching-wise, and Chance Adams, uh, Miguel and Duhar, but they did not want to let go of, Chan- uh, of Clint Frazier. So you-, you could potentially see that come up again where maybe the Yankees now move on from those pieces, knowing that they might not have a spot. The Yankees are in position to really compete and probably – easily win the AL East, I think, at least in my mind. Uh, And really, I'm not going to say cakewalk because I don't want to jinx anything, but it should be pretty pretty easy to get to the World Series, at least on the uh, American League side of things. My number one concern, which no one's really talked about yet, if Gary Sanchez has had injury problems in the past and he's had consistency problems in the past, and Austin Romine's gone, the next, our backup catcher is Kyle Higashioka, if anything happens, Kyle Higashioka is the Yankees' starting catcher. That is true. That is true. And then hopefully the Yankees, like, like I said before, you know, if it's not uh, if it's not people moved for a pitcher, maybe it'll be people moved for more depth at a certain position because that is definitely a position in which the Yankees definitely do lack at, not necessarily infielding positions or outfielding positions, that they have a substantial amount of players, whether it's in the minors or whether it's on their current roster, um, so they don't have to necessarily worry about that. I have nothing wrong with the guy. He's had a great grind, deserves to be in the major leagues, but he's 29 years old and he really hasn't proven anything from a major league standpoint. And I don't know how much more time he's got before he can prove himself. Yeah, no doubt. And now moving on to the New York Mets. Excuse me. The New York Mets. So not a lot of news going really on with the Mets right now at the moment, except for the fact um, Seth Lugo... Uh, obviously a pitcher for the Mets. He had <laughs> the Mets. It's just funny. The Mets seem to uh, suffer from some of the dumbest and stupidest things possible that could potentially happen to a franchise. It it just happens to the Mets all the time. He reportedly broke his pinky toe uh, in a hotel. He stubbed his pinky toe and broke it. So at the moment, um, he's pitching, but not pitching 
on a on an actual mound. He's pitching on a flat surface. I believe that Jed Lowry is still in a um, a cast. I believe uh, around one of his legs at the moment. Uh, just a lot of there's a lot of bad things happening to the New York Mets organization at the moment. But you know the injury bug has hit a lot of teams. The Mets are definitely one of them. And speaking of injury bug ridden players, um, a guy like Yoenis Cespedes. He's come back. The Mets were able to smartly negotiate his contract into something minimalistic where if he doesn't necessarily perform at such a high level, the Mets only owe him for the season, I believe, $9 million, if I'm not mistaken, something around that, instead of the massive amount of money that he was once signed for uh, when he signed that major deal back in 2015, I want to say it was. So that's good. But what do you potentially see, Andrew, out of Yoan assessment as coming into Basically, his first real season of baseball since 2016, 2017. Because he's been hurt the last two years significantly where he's missed a major amount of time. And now he's finally coming back in the position to play an everyday role for this New York Mets organization. Yeah, he's only played 109 games in the last three seasons. Didn't play at all in 2019. Barely any in 2018. So you really have no clue what to expect out of him. I mean... I think his arm will still be there. I think his power will still be there. But will he be able to stay on the field? Will he be able to produce consistently? Will he be able to be a five-tool player that maybe he once was? So other than maybe throwing people out from home plate, because I don't think he, from the outfield to home plate, because I don't really think he lost his arm. I don't really know what else he can really do. He'll definitely, I think he'll definitely hit 20 home runs if he stays healthy, but he's going to strike out probably 200 times. They're just, you really don't know what he's capable of anymore. No doubt. I mean, and that's going to be a major question, but I think that with the production in which the Mets were able to get out of some of these younger players, like Pete Alonso, like a Jeff McNeil, like a Michael Conforto, I don't think that they're necessarily going to have to worry that much, like a J.D. Davis as well. Um, just a bunch of guys that can play uh, every day. And, you know, Pete Alonso came out a couple days ago and he states, you know, he believes that the Mets have the pieces to win the whole thing. And you know what? I give him a lot of credit. I give him a lot of credit. You know, going into his sophomore year, coming off the best rookie season of all time, home run-wise, setting the home run record at 53 in one season. But I think the Mets are far, far, far and away from competing for the World Series. I think they got to worry about competing for their, their conference, their division alone, let alone a World Series championship because – you can make the argument. I don't even think there's an argument. If you talk to anybody that knows anything about baseball, anybody would agree that the National League East is probably the hardest division in all of the MLB because of how closely uh, knit and how close and tight other teams within that division are. You know, obviously, besides the Miami Marlins, you have teams like the Philadelphia Phillies, the Atlanta Braves. Um, the Washington Nationals, who are coming off a World Series championship uh, just uh, a few months ago. Uh, obviously, them losing a major piece in Anthony Rendon, who was their main batter besides Juan Soto. But they, they'll still definitely compete because they kept the pitching core together. So that'll definitely be able to help. I mean, you saw what they were able to do in the World Series, basically carry uh, themselves to a World, Champion, uh, a World Series uh, series uh, solely based on pitching and, you know, obviously clutch hitting. But basically winning a World Series title with basically outstanding pitching throughout. You know, you got your hits, you got your runs here and there, but solely based on pitching. So that 
that's not going to change. But you look at those other teams that I just listed, I don't think the Mets are better than any of those teams. No, I mean, look at the division. You have the Braves, who just won 97 games and minus losing their third baseman alike, Josh Donaldson. They haven't lost anyone, and they're still developing their core. You have the Nationals, who just won a World Series with the best three-man pitching combo in baseball. They just re-signed Strasburg. They still have Scherzer. And um, you have the Philadelphia Phillies, who had a very um, under-rated season from what they were potentially able to do. But they just got Joe Girardi as a manager. They Now they have a real manager to lead the team. They added Didi Gregorius. They added pieces around Bryce Harper. And I think they're, I think the Mets are going to be a fourth-place team because the Phillies are going to be so much better. The Nationals, you didn't expect it out of them, but they showed what pitching can do. And the Braves are going to win 100 games, I think. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. I could easily see the Braves, you know, uh, a guy in Ronald Acuna Jr., a guy in Ozzie Albies you know, competing basically with a full year uh, under their belt. Um, another guy that is escaping my mind right now, Andrew, if you know the the pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, he's a rookie pitcher last season, had a phenomenal season. Mike Soroka? Mike Soroka, yes, that's who it was. Had a fantastic season, so a second year under his belt as well. Uh, the Phillies acquiring four, uh, former uh, New York Mets pitcher Zach Wheeler. Obviously, listen, do I think he was worth the money that he got? No way. No way. But you know what? That's what the market was set for. That's what the Philadelphia Phillies needed. They needed pitching. And they uh, needed to take it away from the Mets. And they needed to take it away from the Mets. And they needed to make an opponent within the division uh, within the division weaker. And that's exactly what they did. So when players go out and say, like, oh, we're going to compete for the World Series and we got the pieces to go all the way, do the Mets have good pieces? There's no doubt. But there there needs to be a lot to go right for this Mets teams versus – what has to go right for these other teams who have um, so much going for them already. The New York Mets, it's going to be a major struggle because now you have to go into the season with a full season of what is Marcus Stroman going to be because when Marcus Stroman played in the Mets uniform last season, he really never had a, a great game where he could say, wow, that's that's going to be the guy. You signed Michael Waka, who's, you who know, was at one point you know St. Louis's up-and-rising pitcher who's going to be the guy for the next – decade but didn't turn out to be that they signed a rick porcello who in 2018 won a i believe in 2018 he won the cy young award but in 2019 he had one of the worst seasons uh actually no in 2017 he won the cy young but in 2018 he had one of the worst seasons ever and same thing with uh the 2019 season not that it was so horrific but really wasn't that decent of a season uh you added Players like Jeff Marisnik, center fielder, former Astro player. But outside of that, they really didn't do much. They really didn't do much. They added Dellen Patances, but what Dellen Patances are you going to get? Are you going to get the Dellen Patances of 2015, 2016? Are you going to get the Dellen Patances that uh, looked shell-shocked when he was on the mound, if he could even get to the mound? I know that he's still in the rehab uh, part of his uh, rehabilitation at the moment right now. You know, Is he going to be healthy? Because... You know, obviously nothing could be as bad as Edwin Diaz and Yaris Familia last season. Obviously, you know, they hit rock bottom. They can only go up from here, but is that going to be enough to close out games for you? The Mets have a lot of questions, so I think they're far, far away from competing for a World Series championship. But I think that they will, the Mets will be, the Mets are at a point in time in which they should be about 
around 500, if not better. I'm thinking the same thing. The problem with the Mets is, like you were saying, they're looking for the wrong pieces. They're looking for those guys who were at one point top, and now they're declining. Robinson Cano, Jed Lowry, all these guys who you expected are either going to get hurt or slow down. I see Del Matanzas having a great season. Obviously, you would hope Jerry Smiley and Edwin Diaz, they have to be somewhat better. And But like you just look at the pieces that they're getting that... Mets fans are like, oh, we got this guy, we got this guy, but like, you don't really know how they're going to do anymore. Those are guys of the past, not necessarily what you know. What can you yeah. give me? Rick right Porcello, now. Yeah. all these other guys that they're getting. Well, it's been a story a, for the last few they years. They signed a lot of guys that have a lot of. Uh, it's kind of like a Jason Vargas deal, like what they did upswing a couple potential, years ago. But, upswing potential, but will that potential show truth to the yeah. actual signing? You know, did we uh, was our money well spent? Decision well uh, well done, or is this going to fall back in our face? But we'll see. And just a couple little other quick things before we round out this New York uh, baseball segment and then take a quick break. But with the additions, Andrew, to round this out that the Mets have made this offseason, as well as getting players back from injury, do you see the Mets as a playoff team? Or no, you think they you think they just miss it? Do you think they fall uh, very short of it? What, what do you see the outcome for this Mets team? I see them having a somewhat good season but I think the NL East is too strong I think the NL as a whole is so strong I think they miss it by a few seeds so I think they're a fourth place team in the NL East and I think the Do- I think the Dodgers are much better the uh there's a lot of teams in the NL Central that you don't really know how they're going to do but I don't I think they're going to be decently far back of a second wild card spot I, I, I really just see this Mets team as like maybe a reach of a third and then m- Probably a fourth seed. Again, not because they're going to be a bad team. I'm not predicting the NL they're going very to be a bad team. Heavy. The NL is just the NL, the NL East is just so good that even if the Mets have an above 500 record, and I'll say this right here and now, I think the if the Mets win 90 games, I still think they're going to miss the playoffs. Oh yeah, definitely. because of how good that NL East is, and on top of the fact that the wild card stance is going to be so uh, filled with NL East teams on top of the central the west as well it's just gonna be so difficult for them to make it they might even need to win 93 games to get even a wild card spot let alone a actual seeding playoff spot i think they're gonna be like an eighth place team in the nl i think they're gonna be like seven teams better and like six teams worse or whatever so i think they're gonna be like right in i think they're gonna be a middle of the line of an nl team yeah no doubt and that'll do it for our new york baseball segment uh, here on Review and Preview. When we come back, we will be talking about the Astro scandal and much more. But first, we're going to take a quick break. And welcome back to Review and Preview, folks. I'm your host, Kyle Russo, alongside Andrew Scarpacci here at LIU Studios. Andrew, we're going to jump right into it. The Astro scandal. It's been going on for about two months now. Um, since Mike Fires has come out and basically, I don't know, maybe it was a, a living with guilt, but came out and basically alluded to the fact that the Astros were using a method of sign stealing by putting cameras in the outfield uh, so players within the dugout could see what's going on, uh, banging on trash cans, notifying uh, one of their uh, batters what type of pitch was going to be coming at them. Uh, to make it easier, obviously, to make contact with the baseball and obviously get on base. Uh, But this has angered a lot of people. It's angered a lot of people, people within baseball, former and current players, 
even people outside of baseball. And we're going to jump right into that. So going along with the Yankees, uh, a couple Yankees players have spoken out about it. Uh, Solely Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, they've spoken out about the Astros in general. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton had made a statement basically saying that if he knew what pitches were coming, he'd hit 80 home runs. And, you know, obviously you say 80 home runs, that's a lot, but you don't really take the magnitude in which he spoke at uh, into consideration when it came to the number that he listed. But you understand what he's saying by, you know, it only makes it easier for a person who's hitting to hit the baseball when you know what's coming at you. Well, that was the year he hit 57, so who knows what he could have hit if he had if he knew what was coming that year because he was talking about 2017 specifically his last year with the Marlins. Yep. And then when Aaron Judge as well, uh, Aaron Judge, because Aaron Judge uh, not only was affected World Series-wise, but MVP-wise because now you look at that MVP trophy that was uh, given to Jose Altuve, and you say that's tainted and that's tarnished, and what meaning does that have uh, now? Because during that season, they obviously won the World Series. Jose Altuve won the MVP away from Aaron Judge, in which Aaron Judge had 52 home runs. Yes, Altuve might have had a better overall season, but now at the standpoint in which the game is at and the understanding of maybe why that happened, you know, you say, should the trophies be stripped? But that's something that we'll get into in just a little bit. Some there other was guy. a study done. I don't really know how true it was, but some guy listened to every single Astros game and he wrote down what percentage of bangs you heard from each amount of pitches that a player got. Jose Altuve got a very small percentage of bangs heard from the dugout for how many pitches he saw. George Springer was at the top of the chart. He saw he there was about a bang on like over 25% of every pitch. So one in every four pitches that George Springer saw, you heard a bang from the dugout with Jose Altuve. It was something like four or five percent. So that's incredible because if you remember back to that season, George Springer was like the guy that was the year in the World peaked. Series. That was the year he peaked. Yeah, that's what's making him. Uh, you know, obviously the past couple seasons, not just yeah. 2017, but one of the best outfielders in baseball, uh, offensively and defensively as well. Uh, but that's something I didn't know, and I, and I bet you've seen the statistic as well. Uh, home versus away games, you know, where you have the three players listed out, Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, and even Evan Gaddis. And you look at those numbers, the batting average differences, and there's even margins of uh, batting average differences of up to 100, uh, 100 uh, batting differential, meaning going from a batting average of 300 to a batting average of 200 uh, home versus on the road, obviously because of the sign stealing and uh, what had transpired. Uh, during the 2017 and and probably even the 2018 and 2019 seasons. Uh, other players have spoken out as well, and this is how you know it's big when Mike Trout's speaking out, a humble guy who Same was dealt with, with Judge. Judge as well, but uh, with Trout especially just because of what he deals with with the Angels organization and how, I don't want to say, I don't want to say incompetent, but just how they've allowed such a generational, arguably the best baseball player ever to kind of, in a way, go to go to a waste uh, up until this year because they have made some decent moves, you know, acquiring Anthony Rendon. But in the past, just allowing such a generational-type player, I believe he's won three MVPs now. 14-16 in last year. Just, just to allow to kind of go to waste, uh, not even be able to make the playoffs with this type of guy, this caliber type of guy. Him speaking out and basically saying that he lost a lot of respect 
for the Astros organization as a whole and the players that play for the Astros. Uh, Cody Bellinger saying that the Dodgers were cheated out of World Series championships, which I believe they were because not only did they lose in 2017 to the Astros, but also lost in 2018 to the Boston Red Sox, who had had Alex Cora at the time as their manager. And listen, if it worked over in Houston, I guarantee they did it in Boston as well. And that'll be uh, a story for months and months to come uh, down the line as well. But uh, up until the Houston Astros case is solved, that'll be something else that baseball and Rob Manfred will get more involved with over time. Uh, Even former Boston player David Ortiz, he called out Mike Fires. He basically called him a snitch and basically, you know, basically claimed in which he might be the worst out of all this because of the fact that he... He's looked at more of a hero than he is a villain right now for bringing it out. Meanwhile, he was a part of it and grew from it the whole time. Exactly. You know, Ortiz basically stated, you know, after you get a ring, you decide to talk upon it. So basically, you know what, uh, you felt guilty about it to release it now, but you didn't feel guilty enough to release it when you were a member of the team. You wanted to get your ring first, which, you know, I completely agree with David Ortiz. It's, It's a weak move. It's a cheap move. It's a... It's a cheating, cheating, disgusting act by a pitcher to not only rat out an entire organization but be a part of it and then wait till you leave and not be a part of that organization to uh, to not be involved with it anymore. He's even got, uh, what I've read in reports, is he's gotten death threats uh, because of the whole, how he leaked the whole situation out. Because, again, if Mike Fires doesn't come out, this whole situation, we're not sitting here talking about it right now. But uh, Mike Fires is responsible for... Basically, I don't want to say the scandal itself, but the whole releasement of to the public of the scandal in general. If he said it to the MLB and then let the MLB investigate it on their own before making anything public, I would say that would be somewhat fair. But he shouldn't have released it straight to the public because he's looking for attention in a way, but also trying to make it not about him at the same time. And another guy who is making a quiet case for the Hall of Fame, who you wouldn't expect to say anything. Nick Markakis, he was talking about how it angers him. He's a 14-year veteran, and he hates how the Astros did it to cheat, and he would never do something like that. He said the Astros, I think he said, and I quote, the Astros deserve a beating or something like that along those lines. It's something like that. But it just shows what type of uh, movement and how to what areas in which this is now reaching because you see everybody speaking out Justin Turner as well speaking about it how the Dodgers were cheated out of a World Series even LeBron James who doesn't even play baseball he goes along and says he would be irate and a lot of a lot of other explicit words that we can't repeat uh based on the fact that if he was in uh the shoes of a baseball player and this had happened to him and he got cheated out of a World Series obviously in his case an NBA championship he would be disgusted and disgraced because it's tarnished and you were cheated out of the game. You know, we pride players, especially in baseball, because of the length of the season in which it entails. It's one of the longest going sports uh, in sports general, in sports in general, uh, due to the length, obviously starting as early as April, the regular season, going all the way to October, but really starting in February doing the spring training. And there's really not many days in between. It's you no, play yeah. every day. It's, it's 162 yeah. games I saw last season. Yankees had a the Yankees had a span of games in which they played twenty something straight games and then got one day off and then yeah. on to the next fifteen plus games. So it takes a lot, a lot of hard work and consistency, and a long, basically a whole year's worth down the drain. And to be cheated out of something like that is 
absolutely disgusting. And then you see guys like Jim Crane come out, the owner of the Houston Astros, and basically says, well, well, it didn't affect it didn't affect the outcome of the World Series. You know, it didn't have any effect on it. We're going to win sit, again. <laughs> and, then you, and then you sit here as a fan and you hear that and you say to yourself, well, if it had no effect on it, then why would you even go to that yeah. magnitude and measure and do something like that? You did it because it did have an effect on the game and it did improve your team and it did give you an edge over the team that you were playing against. And everyone talking about Rob Manford in this whole situation because everyone doesn't think he gave a big enough punishment. And then LeBron makes a pun about Manford. He said, you have to do something about the players. The ball is in your court, or should I say in your field? Yeah, exactly. So you see all these puns coming out, and Rob Manford's really been making a joke out of right now. Oh, yeah. he Listen, uh, he's already been knocked uh, for the last few years. Um uh, one of the best commissioners in all sports, in my personal opinion, is Adam Silver of the NBA. The other two major sports uh, in basketball and, I mean, in the NFL and and baseball, in Rob Manfred and Roger Goodell, it's, yeah, those are two uh, commissioners in which people don't necessarily agree with, don't necessarily like, especially from the player's standpoint and the owner's standpoint. So for some of this to happen, and especially Rob Manfred, coming out with this statement basically he obviously retracted the statement due to the heat in which he received but uh, a couple days ago he goes uh, I don't see the point in uh, rescinding or uh, getting rid of the Astros uh, World Series championship when it's just a piece of metal and that that made a lot of players and it's called the commissioner's trophy and yeah exactly that that made a lot of players mad Uh, especially Justin Turner he uh, alluded to it he goes he goes um well, if it means so little, then why don't we take your title off the trophy's yeah. name? If it means so little, if it's just a piece of metal. And and he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. For for a commissioner to make a blatant statement like that uh, is just disgusting and disgraceful. And uh, I don't know really how he's going to be able to handle things because he's going to be a lot. Of, he's going to be under a lot of pressure from the CBA uh, players and now owner-wise uh, from those statements, even though he retracted them and apologized, he's going to be under a lot of pressure to try and get this right. Another personally, one. I don't think he's gotten this right. Oh, no, not at all. And another thing that he's taking heat for, so everyone's talking about him either suspending the players, which that you probably can't do, but at least maybe take the title away, find them more money. Just the, uh, There's got to be something more done. And the only thing he had to say is, I hope that I made it extremely clear to them that retaliation and in-game by throwing at a batter will not be tolerated. So pretty much he's defending the Astros right now. Well, he's basically, he's made them as if they are a victim when meanwhile yeah. they're the villain in this case So scenario. they're talking about what is he going to do to them, and all he has to say is what's going to happen if you do something to them. And, you know, a good take on this, in which I heard a few days ago, Stephen A. Smith on first take a couple of mornings ago, he made a great statement. He said, you know how, you know what you do with the Astros if you're an opposing team? You don't talk to them during the game at all. And in the beginning of the game, you don't go up to them and shake their hands. And even after the game, you don't go up to them and you don't shake their hands. Why? Because that's a that's a that's a move of respect. And nobody in MLB, nobody in sports right now, uh, respects the Astros for anything. And that's how you really you know you don't. Me personally, again, are people going to want a piece of Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa and the rest of those guys? Absolutely. Are they going to want to nail them with a 95 mile per hour fastball? Uh, uh, to their knee, to their ankle, to their head even, God forbid, obviously, because you can kill somebody with that. Absolutely. And, and listen, opening day against Mike Trout and the Angels, I wouldn't doubt I wouldn't doubt that it's going to happen. And even for the 
uh, magnitude of the rest of the season, I wouldn't doubt that's going to happen. And you're probably going to see a lot of punishments probably weekly flying out about teams being um, players being fined or suspended for uh, hitting uh, Astro players with baseballs. But that, that to me is a cheap move. That's a weak move because you're using the ball as a weapon. That's a weak move. I like Stephen A. Smith's point. Make them feel horrible about it. Make them feel like you don't even consider them as an opponent or on the same level as you. Because that's how you really get to them. That's how you really make them feel bad. You don't have to put them in pain. Put them in a mental state of disarray. That's, I think that's the best standpoint in which you can do. And I think that a lot of teams will go with that because a lot of teams probably don't even want to probably don't even want to face off against the Astros because they don't even consider them on the same level as in which they are as other teams. You know, there's been cheating in the past. There's no doubt, especially from, you know, even from a Yankees organization in which we love, whether it's PEDs or drug use and other stuff like that. But a good point in which a lot of people bring up, Andrew, is that PEDs, yeah, is it cheating? It makes you stronger, right? But the PEDs lead you to making contact with the baseball. You still have to know how to hit a baseball, you still have and you to still have to know, know what's coming. Baseball. You still have to know what's coming, exactly. And what the Houston Astros did makes it 100%, not 100%, but makes it maybe 10 times easier to, to hit a baseball and get on base. Some people were talking about maybe a two-year playoff ban would be the good move. I'd be down. I'd be down with that. I'd be a hundred percent on board with that. I'd be a hundred percent on board with them not being able to compete. Period for two years. You know, you saw what happened uh, in Louisville. Uh, obviously, it's probably the close, most closely related. The thing. NCAA always does things differently, though. But probably the most closely yeah. uh, relatable thing that's happened in uh, years past, where their title was. Uh, Revoked, rescinded uh, 2013 when they won the national championship game, uh, basketball-wise. Um, but, you know, people recognize it as, you know, forever Louisville was the champion, but their banners have been taken down. Their their, their championship pedigree is You take the symbol away. You take it away, and I think that's what needs to happen for the Houston Astros. I, I truly believe that's what needs to happen. And I would go personally as far as... Uh, Especially in Jose Altuve's case scenario, because I, I heard what you had to say upon the the study done about percentages of which, you know, banging on the trash can and which pitches were alluded to and what was coming yeah. at him. And he was one of the players who had the least amount done on that. Not necessarily because you don't know because you, you wouldn't hear a bang on a fastball. So just because you didn't hear a bang, you would still know if a fastball was coming. The bang percentage only tells you how often a player knew exactly when a breaking ball was coming, but the other side of it, you still wouldn't know. Okay. So maybe George Swing was just throwing more curveballs so he heard more bangs. But, I mean, there's no way to tell how many exact pitches play that the Astros players knew what was coming. They only knew when. A, you can only tell from that study how many times a player knew when a breaking ball was coming. And there's so many th- other things that come along with it. Me personally, and this is not me being a biased Yankees fan at all. This is me being a fan of baseball. I would personally have... Jose Altuve hand give Aaron Judge the MVP award because that's who rightfully deserved it. I don't care if you had a lesser percentage of bangs going your way, you were a part of cheating. You don't yeah. deserve that. Uh, Mookie Betts in 2018 won the MVP award. Should he be uh, give it to Mike Trout? Should he give it to Mike Trout or whoever back in 2018? I don't remember at the time who's one of the best players in the AL. Absolutely. Should the Boston Red Sox World Series championship be? tarnished or diminished you know over time like i said that will be investigated as well but at the moment not at the moment jordan alvarez 
Houston Astros baseball player uh, this season won Rookie of the Year in the AL. Should he have to give his trophy back? We don't know what happened this year. There was the conspiracy with all the buzzers, which half half of people say it's true, half of people say it isn't. The MLB said they did an investigation and found nothing, but who really knows? They might just be trying to help the Astros at this point. But um, Well, because I think it's, it's so much to overcome and so yeah. much to find out when there's such little ways to prove it. You know what I mean? All you could do is listen back to tape, but what are you going to do? You're going to listen back to three seasons worth of baseball and try to distinguish on whether or not they cheated? All you have is one person's word yeah. basically saying, oh, yeah, we did cheat back in 2017. If it wasn't for fires coming out, you'd have nothing. Oh, yeah, no way. You'd have nothing. There is proof about 2017, though. You can go in here back and listen to all the bangs on the trash cans, but with the buzzer thing... I mean, you can see if maybe there was a bump in the players' jerseys. I mean, that I mean, you bi- you have the notorious Jose Altuve rounding uh, third base don't and saying, "Don't rip shirt. off my jersey." Did you hear what Gary Sanchez said? Yeah, he goes, uh, "If I if, hit a if home I, run, if I had a home run to go to the World Series, uh, you could rip every <laughs> piece of clothing off my body." Yeah, which is listen, if, if that's what it's got to get to. Trout said the same thing. To. He goes, "I don't care. Rip my shirt off if I do the same thing." Granted. He's probably not hitting a home run to get the Angels to the World Series anytime soon. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And on that note, that'll wrap it up for our Astro scandal. We're going to jump into, for the remainder of uh, this 8 o'clock hour, about 10 minutes left, Andrew, we're going to just recap NBA All-Star Weekend. So a lot happened this weekend, a lot of good and some bad. Uh, take it for what it is. Uh, Team LeBron beat Team Giannis with a final score of 157-155. to 155. Kawhi Leonard comes away with the MVP uh, award for this game, which is now called, uh, sadly due to, the, due to the passing of Kobe Bryant, it's now called the Kobe Bryant MVP Award. Kobe Bryant MVP All-Star Award, I believe it's called, to be exact. Kawhi in this game dropped 30 points, had 7 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 steals. Uh, LeBron James and Chris Paul each had 23 points. Anthony Davis had won the game by hitting a free throw to end it. Uh, this was actually a really good game, Andrew. I don't know if you watched it necessarily but this was a really good game you know over the course of time in which the NBA all-star game has been played it's kind of been it's kind of been a joke it's kind of been a joke it's kind of been uh if I could relate it to you in uh, layman's terms it's kind of been like the NFL Pro Bowl game you know it, it's so much of a joke that the NFL had to instill uh dodgeball to get ratings up because the NFL Pro Bowl game itself was so horrible and so useless it was basically to the point of why not just stick a flag around somebody and call it flag football? Because that's essentially what it was. But what the NBA did differently this year, and sadly it, it had to change, not had to change, but came up with the idea of changing due to the passing of NBA legend uh, Kobe Bryant, was to play the first three quarters regularly. You know, you know you're going to have those lackadaisical moves. You're going to have a, a lot of dunks, a lot of no defensive plays. But the fourth quarter was played, uh, no time. There was no time. Uh, it was played to a cap score of 24, obviously uh, in honor, paying homage to Kobe Bryant, obviously won number 24 for a uh, majority of his career, besides the number eight. A final score of 24, and whichever team reached 24 for that quarter first uh, ultimately became the winner. And I like the move. I really do. Because what I saw from this game, Andrew, was that I think I saw more competition than I've seen in an actual NBA Finals game. You know, and that's when you're competing for the Larry O'Brien Trophy. That's that's the cream of the crop. That's what you're playing for. You're playing to become an NBA champion. This game was played better defensively in the fourth quarter, better than I think an NBA Finals game. You saw star players 
star against star on every stretch of the imagination, you know, in an NBA Finals game, you're going to have your star, too, and you're going to have your positional players, your good players, you're going to have your role players, you're going to have your uh, bench players. But you're not going to have stars all across the boards. You had stars all across the board competing with each other offensively and defensively full speed because they really, really wanted to win this game. It was something completely different that we've never seen before in the NBA or in sports in general. And it was something that we needed to see how it would go because it's anytime something's changed, everyone wants to see what the outcome is going to be. And it created a more of like a low, like um, sort of like street ball where you play up to a certain amount of points. So it brought, it brought back people to maybe the way they play with their friends. And then it made them want to play tough and competitive in a way they would not in a regular all-star game which is something that the NBA needed to make the game more than what it would have been otherwise. Absolutely. And uh, also with this game, which I thought was very nice, it was in the, obviously in Chicago, the All-Star game was held. Um, uh, each team, each quarter was worth $100,000, meaning that, uh, let's say, Team LeBron scored the most points in the first quarter. Uh, their team would then earn $100,000. Team Giannis, I believe in the second quarter, uh, had the most points, so they got a hundred thousand, and then the third team, LeBron, earned another hundred thousand for winning the third, and then getting another two hundred thousand, I believe, for winning the uh, fourth quarter in general, winning the game as a whole. And all that money was then donated to two separate charities in the Chicago area uh, for Chicago schooling, and uh, that was a really good thing in which the NBA did, and a really great way in handling it, but. Besides the NBA All-Star Game itself, there was also other competitions throughout the weekend, whether it was on uh, Saturday or Sunday. But back to Saturday. Saturday is when all the competitions were held, a lot of fan favorites. You have the skills competition, you have the three-point competition, and obviously the NBA dunk competition, which is major. If you're a basketball fan or not, you love it just to see the athleticism, the creativeness in which NBA players really take and instill uh, into the game and bring to the competition platform uh, during All-Star Weekend. So the NBA's skills competition started off with... Um, uh, it started off with Bam Adebayo coming out victorious, Miami Heat player. Uh, he matched up against DeMontis Sabonis in the final in the final round of the skills competition. It's pretty impressive because those are two big men. You don't necessarily uh, see two big men making it that far because the last part of the competition is to complete a three-point shot, and you don't necessarily see three-point uh, shots being nailed by big men, but that was the final two big. That was the final two people in this competition. Uh, Bam Adebayo hits a three-pointer to win the skills competition. Uh, then you see Buddy Heald. Buddy Heald of the Sacramento Kings uh, shooting guard winning the three-point competition narrowly uh, to Devin Booker. Devin Booker, he was competing against Devin Booker at the time, and on the last shot, the last shot, Buddy Heald beat Devin Booker by a point to win the whole thing in general and come home with a three-point competition trophy uh, in which he won on Saturday. And then the dunk competition. The, gun, the dunk competition in which we saw likes of Dwight Howard, Pat Connaughton, Derek Jones Jr., and Aaron, Gor- and Aaron Gordon performing. Excuse me. Uh, the final two competitors in this match were Aaron Gordon and Derek Jones Jr., and listen, Aaron Gordon, I'm a big Miami Heat fan, so I was very happy that Derrick Jones Jr. came out victorious in this competition. But Aaron Gordon, 
absolutely 100% got robbed of this competition. Now, am I going to go along and side with the fact that Derek Jones Jr. did not deserve it? No, I'm not going to say that because Derek Jones Jr. absolutely performed lights out level dunks that have never, ever been seen before. The reason why I favored Derek Jones Jr. in this sense is because of one thing. Derek Jones Jr. competed a dunk uh, midway through the dunk competition. If they each did about, if they each did about six, seven, or eight dunks, it was about at the fourth or fifth dunk in the competition. Derek Jones Jr. did a dunk. Uh, this was after Aaron Gordon had did, had did one of his one of one of his fifty uh, point dunks because all of his dunks were uh, managed to receive him fifty points. After one of his 50-point dunks, he took off his shoes. He sat on the sidelines and said, I'm done. I don't need to do anymore. And then Derek Jones Jr. comes out, and he puts up a 50-point dunk. And then Aaron Gordon then comes out and do the same exact dunk. Now, that's where I think the competition should have been over. Because if I'm competing against you, why would I receive the same grade that you got for doing the same exact thing? This is a level of creativity and the level of skill, I'm not saying that the skill part of it didn't deserve a 50, but the creativity part of it did. You sat on the bench and said that I don't need to do this anymore. I did enough. And then you copied the same exact dunk in which your competitor, your opponent, had just done. And you should not be receiving the same grade for that. You should not be receiving the same score. It should be faltered because of the fact that it's already been done. In fact, been done within the same competition that you're competing in right now. And I think that's where the edge goes to Derek Jones Jr. in my personal opinion. And that's where the competition should have been ended, in my personal opinion. But the fact of the matter is, Derek Jones Jr. did come out victorious with lower scores than Aaron Gordon did. Aaron Gordon, like I said, put 50s all across the board. Didn't have one score lower than a 50. Capped out a 50 every single dunk that he had. Well, Derek Jones did have a a 46 dunk. He did have a 48 dunk. But for a majority of the fact, he did pull out 50s as well. But the fact that Aaron Gordon copied one of his dunks mid-competition after saying he doesn't need to dunk anymore, I think that's where it should have been ended. They but, should have been stricter on 50 points. Like It, it shouldn't just be, oh my God, that was amazing, 50 points. It yeah. should really be, it, there that, should be a guideline. that should be something special as 50, not just any great, spectacular move. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. But I do believe that Aaron Gordon was robbed in this case scenario, because I do believe that at the end of the day, he did have higher scores all across the board than Derrick Jones Jr. did have. Uh, but Derrick Jones Jr. did come out victorious. Uh, in this dunk contest, after the after the contest, Derrick Jones Jr. then states puts out a statement saying that he looks to repeat his champion as he will look to compete in the dunk competition next NBA All-Star Weekend, which will take place next year. And Aaron Gordon being robbed now arguably twice of the dunk competition has stated that he will no longer be participating in it. So on that note, that'll do it for our recap of the NBA All-Star Weekend on top of our Astros Scandal segment. When we come back, we will be giving you our Team of the Week and previewing the NBA second half as well as NBA playoffs. But first, a quick break. And welcome back to Review and Preview, folks. Uh... I'm I'm your host Kyle Russo alongside uh, Andrew Scarpacci, our engineer for tonight. Andrew, we're going to start off with our team of the week. Team of the week. All right, I'm going to let you go first because I don't want to go first. That's as simple as that. 
I think I got to go with the Lakers. I mean, they just, they deserve it. They've been playing really well as of recently, maintaining that top seed. And after everyone was saying, oh, what, how are they going to pull through after everything that happened? They've shown they're, they're going to pull through. I am going to go with Team LeBron. Team LeBron of this past weekend's NBA All-Star Game. Uh, one of the best, all, probably the best All-Star Game that has ever taken place, obviously due to the recent rule changes. Um, but it was it was great. It was great. They they came out victorious. Kawhi Leonard came away with the MVP, member of Team LeBron, uh, as well. And you know they set a standard now for what will happen, hopefully for years and years to come, when it comes to the play of an NBA All Star Game. All right. Next topic of discussion, Andrew, the NBA second half of the season. Obviously, the NBA All Star Weekend breaks up the um, the NBA season. So we're going to be talking about the NBA right now, just the second half of the season, uh, talking about some recent news in the NBA, and maybe even getting a little bit into the playoffs potentially. So as of recent, uh, John Beeline uh, resigned as the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, but will remain within the organization. So, so Beeline, he listen during the regular season. It was reported that the players just weren't liking him. He was making some commentary that the players weren't necessarily agreeing with. Uh, he was calling the players names, uh, and it, it just wasn't a good la- outlook. On top of the fact, of all things, um, you know they just weren't winning. The Cavaliers sit at I believe the thirteenth or fourteenth seed in the Eastern Conference right now. They have about 14 wins on the season, which is terrible. Uh, Beeline's coaching just never really transitioned over from Michigan, uh, as he was a head coach in the Mich- uh, as he was a head coach at Michigan uh, last year before coming over to uh, the NBA, and it just never really transitioned nicely. Uh, usually, uh, for a coach in which his characteristics entail meaning his coached, uh, coaching method and his coaching style is more for an older team, a more veteran-like team with some younger pieces who've had success in the past, not necessarily for a young, 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 young group of guys like the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, consist of because that's really their makeup right now. They have a lot of young guys, not a lot of guys that have accomplished a lot in this league outside of maybe Kevin Love and you could argue maybe Tristan Thompson. But outside of those guys, not a lot of success to go around. Uh, not a lot of liking towards uh, the head coaching of John Beeline. Um, but we will see. We'll, this will necessarily take the Cleveland Cavaliers in, as an organization. In other news, uh, Clay Thompson, Golden State Warriors, uh, Warriors shooting guard, has officially been ruled out for the rest of the season. So any uh, Golden State Warrior fans out there, any NBA fans in general, that had high aspirations or hopes that maybe Klay Thompson and Steph Curry might be getting back on the court this season. Again, uh, I hate to break it to you, but Klay Thompson at least will not be making uh, his season debut this season. He will not be returning back to an NBA court until next season, which I believe is a smart move. The Golden State Warriors have played themselves so far out of a playoff spot. I believe if the team, if the season was to end today, um, they would be the worst team. I think they already are the worst team in the NBA at the moment, record-wise. decent amount. And they would hold the number one overall pick, obviously not guaranteed due to the recent rule changes in the NBA draft lottery, but they would hold the the number one overall pick 
from a record standpoint. However, Steve Kerr has stated that Steph Curry will look to get some uh, games in under his belt at the latter part of the season, which I don't necessarily know what the reasoning would be at that point to bring him back necessarily knowing that there's no hope on the season. There's no way in which they could potentially squeeze into the Western Conference playoff seating. But, you know, maybe just to get some playing back underneath his belt a little bit. Again, I I don't really think that's the best choice and method to do. I understand that Steph Curry really didn't self-injure himself. He got got fell on by Aaron Baines and broke his hand, so obviously not a self-inflicted injury or something that he had any control over. But again, not necessarily knowing what the reason is for him coming back at this point in the season. Probably just to make money, get get some extra ticket sales. How is he gonna how is he gonna play out the rest of the year? Uh, probably something along those lines, Andrew. Um But there's been a lot of other injuries going on throughout the NBA at the moment. Uh Carl Anthony Towns, uh center for the Minnesota Timberwolves, is going to be out uh for an extended amount of time due to a wrist injury that he suffered before All-Star break. And this is going to hurt the Timberwolves a lot. Not that they were competing for a playoff seed to begin with, but the fact that now they're basically down to D'Angelo Russell as their main consistency of offense, uh, offensive production. It's going to hurt them a lot, and I don't really see them winning a lot of games in the near future, especially while Carl Anthony Towns, who's averaging about like 26-10, and 10, I want to say somewhere around there. He's definitely averaging double-doubles. Uh, he's definitely averaging a double-double. But something along those lines, um, it's definitely going to be missed in that Minnesota Timberwolves uh, locker room as well as on the court performance as well. Uh, Damian Lillard, another guy who got hurt before All-Star Week, All-Star Weekend, actually got replaced by Devin Booker a few days before the All-Star game uh, proceeded uh, in the three-point uh, three competition. Devin Booker replaced Damian Lillard as well as the All-Star game. Um, but uh, Damian Lillard will be missing at least another three, four games for the Portland Trailblazers uh, with a groin injury that he suffered before All-Star break. This is going to hurt the Portland Trailblazers a lot. I believe they are at the ninth or 10th seed right now in the Western Conference. They're competing for a playoff position at the moment, and missing Damian Lillard for these next three or four games could potentially hurt you a lot uh, because these are games that you need to win in order to get back into that playoff competition, back into competing, back into those one through eight seeds, uh, playoff wise right now yeah they're in the nine seed three and a half back of the memphis grizzlies it, unless they can maybe split two and two while he's away it's going to really take a toll on on how many games they're going to be back by the time he gets back yeah no absolutely you know how much is cj mccollum hassan uh white side uh, all the guys really going to be able to ca- uh, carry the load offensively for this portland trailblazers team you know only time will tell but damian lillard Missing these three, four games, it might hurt them substantially where they might not be able to get back uh, due to the fact that they already are three, three and a half games back. Uh, they might fall out too far to the point where it might just be too much to overcome and get back into the playoff race uh, for them. In other news, uh, a couple hours ago, DeMarcus Cousins of the L.A. Lakers was released, uh, was waived by the L.A. Lakers to uh, make a roster spot for newly acquired uh, Markeith Morris. Markeith Morris was bought out by the Detroit Pistons um, earlier today as well. So I don't really understand this move personally. Uh, during All-Star Weekend, a lot of players and head coach Frank Vogel had gone out and said, you know, we look forward to having Boogie Cousins back in the lineup. 
uh, you know, he'll be able to return this season and compete, maybe help us down the stretch uh, towards playoff um, as the playoffs approach. Uh, but I guess they wanted to make room for, you know, a player they could play now and help them win games now and a guy in Markeith Morris who's been a seasoned veteran, uh, a journeyman around the NBA, been playing with a lot of teams over the uh, past, I want to say, eight seasons of his NBA career. He's moved around a lot. Uh, so to have a ready-now player in their lineup will definitely help them relieve minutes away from players like LeBron James and Anthony Davis to um, get them more relaxation uh, relaxation time, time to rest, uh, and which is definitely needed for them as they hope to compete down the stretch in the playoffs and potentially get to an NBA Finals or a Western Conference Finals. In other news, Trey Young uh, dropped a 50-point game last night on the Miami Heat with a final score of 129-124 to for the Miami Heat. Uh, The Miami Heat, uh, my favorite team in the NBA. I'm I'm a big fan of what they do and what they've been able to accomplish for a very, very long time. And in their last six games, they have a record of one and five. And me personally, as a fan of them and just a fan of basketball, I am worried. I am 100% worried. I am worried because I'm a big believer in playing down to your opponent. And some of their losses do consist of those teams that you played down to your opponent, you know, like the Atlanta Hawks last night, a team that has no playoff hope whatsoever. I believe, Andrew, if I'm not mistaken, they sit at the 14th or. 15, second to last. Second to last 14th seed in the Eastern Conference right now. They're not competing for anything. Uh, loss to the Sacramento Kings uh, before All-Star break. And the Sacramento Kings also stand at like a 14th or 13th seed in the Western Conference. 13th. 13th seed in the Western Conference as well. A team that's not really competing at all. To lose games to those guys, to those teams, teams in which you need to scrape together wins with, even though you do sit at the fourth seed right now in the Eastern Conference, the Miami Heat at the moment, you need to be able to get wins against those guys. You know, teams in like the L.A. Clippers where you lose to, you can live with those team those team losses. First off, because you don't have to play them until you were to get to an NBA Finals. On top of the fact that that's a team in the L.A. Clippers who a lot of people believe will wind up reaching the NBA Finals, if not definitely the Western Conference Finals from how they've been playing so far this season. So you can live with those losses. But losses like those, the 13th and 14th seeds, you, you just can't have that. Because down the stretch, when you when the seeding gets set into play, you, you look back and you say, man, you know, that's the difference between the Miami Heat playing uh, at a fourth seed or them playing at a third seed, and that could really hurt you down the line. You've got to beat the teams in your conference, most importantly, because that's how you build ground, not just gain it. Not just gain your own wins, but you have to be able to set the other teams back too. Absolutely, absolutely, and potentially set yourself up for success later down the line when you do reach that, uh, when you do reach the playoffs. And sticking with the Miami Heat, the Miami Heat tomorrow will play the Cleveland Cavaliers in Miami uh, against uh, against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Dwayne Wade, uh, special occasion for the Miami Heat here. Dwayne Wade will be getting his number number three retired in the Raptors. Big moment. Um, only a few players. In Heat history, have this honor: Chris, uh, Chris Bosh, uh, Tim Hardaway, Michael Jordan, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. So, Dwayne Wade will join alongside in the Raptors uh, players along uh, those standard in which those players set for the Miami Heat organization. Outside of Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan never played for the Miami Heat, but just out of respects, uh, Mickey Harrison and the Heat organization um, reti- uh, retiring the number twenty-three. 
so that no ever uh, no Miami Heat player will ever wear that number ever again. Uh, but Dwayne Wade's number will rightfully so be retired in the rafters of the American Airlines Arena for years and years to come. Some big games this weekend. Uh, some sad. Uh, some games on Saturday. 76ers versus the Milwaukee Bucks at 8:30, uh, and the Rockets versus the Jazz at nine. And then on Sunday we got the Celtics versus the Lakers at 3:30, and the Pacers versus the Raptors at 6 p.m. Uh, these are a lot of good games. You know, these are potential playoff matchups: 76ers versus the Bucks, Rockets versus the Jazz, Celtics versus the Lakers, which is always a fan favorite due to the fact that the Lakers and the Celtics. I believe the no, the Celtics. I believe have the most NBA championships. Right, only one in front of the LA Lakers, or it might be vice versa. But I do believe the Celtics have one more NBA championship than the LA Lakers do. So this is always a fan favorite matchup. You know, you'll see the likes of um, Jason Tatum go up against LeBron James in this matchup. Anthony Davis and Jalen Brown, other guys along those lines. Rajon Rondo playing his former Boston Celtics team, in which you won a championship with against players like Marcus Smart and other guys like that. And then a Pacers versus Raptors matchup, which is also very nice considering the fact that the Toronto Raptors now sit at the second seed in the Eastern Conference, I believe so. And the Indiana Pacers uh, slowly uh, gaining back wins as they do, uh, as they have gotten Victor Aldipo back and acclimated from his injury back into the lineup as the star player in which he is. So definitely some good games to look out for uh, this weekend. And on that note, Andrew, we're going to move into New York basketball solely. So we're going to be talking about the New York Knicks and the New York Nets. So obviously breaking news within the New York Nets organization. Um, Kyrie Irving will undergo season-ending shoulder surgery. So he will be done for the year. And rightfully so. And... In some case scenarios, I see this as the best case scenario for the Brooklyn Nets. They sit at the seventh seed. The Orlando Magic, I believe, are a game and a half back of them for the eighth seed. It's something like that. And then the ninth seed is only three and a half games back, I believe it is, with the Washington Wizards at the number nine seed. I believe that's the case scenario, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Brooklyn seven, Orlando eight, one, two and a half difference there, and then Washington another uh, two and a half difference there. All right, so it's two and a half. It's not three and a half. So three total, three total, three total. So this would, this I believe is the best case scenario for the Brooklyn Nets. Kevin Durant's not coming back this season. You're not competing for an NBA championship this season. Uh, this season, what's the point of making the playoffs to get wiped out in the first round? Because you're probably not going to be able to win a game against the Milwaukee Bucks if you do face off against them, especially when you're not healthy on all cylinders. Missing a guy like Kyrie Irving, uh, not even talking about Kevin Durant because Kevin Durant was never coming back this season. Due to his injury, give it a full year's of rest. But um, Kyrie Irving being out, even though that the Brooklyn Nets statistically they do play better, they do play better when he's not on the court. To have him, um, to have him out, I, I furthermore only allows you to better your team. What I mean by this is that you're now going to get a lot of playing time go towards guys that you can now potentially build around Kevin Durant and Kyrie for next season and could potentially help them later down the line. So you could see what you have in those pieces more and more so, more often for more playing time and give them more opportunity to compete and see what they really got. And from a coach's perspective, from Kenny Atkinson and from a general manager's 
uh, perspective in Sean Marks, you could say, you know what, these are pieces that we want to keep into next season and put around Kyrie and Kevin Durant so that we can compete for an NBA championship next season. Build the def up and down the roster. Absolutely. Because in my personal opinion, you know, even a Kevin Durant that's 70% of what he once was uh, for next season, that's easily going to get you a second seed in the East, if not a first seed in the East. I only said second seed only because the status of the Milwaukee Bucks, how Giannis Antetokounmpo, the MVP in which he is, has been able to carry this team uh, throughout the season and last season as well. But do will they wind up missing the playoffs? You know, only time will tell. I do see them falling out of the playoffs. You know, you see a game like last night against the against the Philadelphia 76ers. And you say to yourself, um, you know, Brooklyn was leading in this game all game. And the final score in overtime was 112 to 104. In this overtime, the Brooklyn Nets were only able to score one point, which is horrible. Which is horrible. And you look at the plus and minuses of players, and except for one player on the Brooklyn Nets, only one player had a positive plus minus on the team. And yes, they were able to get offensive production from this Brooklyn Nets squad. Uh, Karis LeVert dropping 25, Spencer Dinwiddie dropping 22, DeAndre, uh, DeAndre Jordan off the bench dropping about 14 and 15 off the bench, 14 points, 15 rebounds, and Torian Prince also dropping about 15 points. So the scoring is not the problem, but the closing is. And I think that's where Kyrie Irving comes into play because now they don't have a star closer in which they once did. And I can see the Brooklyn Nets, now that they're not going to be competitive, they will be competitive, but they may lose a lot of games later down the stretch because they don't necessarily have that closer. I think they do make the playoffs. I think they sneak in, and I do think they make a competitive push against either the Raptors or the Bucks, whichever team they play. I think they do maybe take it to a six-game series or maybe really? seven possibly. But I think the biggest key thing is... Kyrie and the Nets, they just weren't made to go together this year. Kyrie, by far, is the most talented player on the team, the best player that they have on the roster, which they will be missing. But this year, they're better without him because he just doesn't match with their style of play yet. He hasn't adjusted to this. He hasn't adjusted to New York as of yet. So I think you give him Kevin Durant next year. You let him develop another year. You let him figure out the media situation. You let him just figure out what Brooklyn is about. And then the Nets will be a scary force to mess with next year. But I think this year it is the best case scenario for the Nets because I think they do have a best shot at making a push towards the playoffs and competitive in the in, in a series. And also in this game, Joel Embiid dropping 39 points and 16 rebounds, uh, kind of getting the 76ers back to a better state, I guess you could say, uh, how they entered the All-Star break with all the controversy in which uh, was with them um, being that uh, the controversy, you know, Oh, the 76 is going to have to trade Ben Simmons or trade Joel Embiid. What piece should be staying? But hopefully down the stretch, they'll be able to figure the things out and compete playoff-wise uh, when we get closer to the months of April, May, and June. To the other New York team, uh, the Garden, New York Knicks. Uh, in recent news, um, for those of you that do not remember, about a year ago, Charles Oakley, former New York legend, uh was attending a Knicks game and got into a disagreement with James Dolan, who's the owner of the New York Knicks. Uh, and it got into a brawl, a scuffle in which Charles Oakley had to be forcefully removed from the garden uh, by the hands of James Dolan, meaning that James Dolan had uh, Charles Oakley escorted out of the garden. And me personally, me personally, I didn't realize that this had led to an actual lawsuit, but Charles Oakley had did actually file a lawsuit against James Dolan. 
And as of today or yesterday, James Dolan had won this lawsuit and the judge had claimed that had claimed that James Dolan had every right to throw Charles Oakley out of the arena. And you know what? Even if the judge does say that James Dolan was right in this aspect, I, I me, in my personal opinion, this is a terrible, terrible look for the New York Knicks organization just to have this, you know, legend uh, who played for you for such a long time and did so many great things with your organization, to have that be one of the things that your team is now remembered for, especially in a time where, your, your play has been porous for about the last decade. Uh, the organization has been necessarily kind of run into the ground where they haven't really been able to put a solid season together where, you know, you could go into the season, it, would, it was questioned on whether or not the New York Knicks were even going to be able to reach uh, a 20-win season. You know, it, it's just a shame. It's just a shame. And, Andrew, if you have anything to, to talk about upon that point, just uh, – you know, where this positions the Knicks as a franchise, just as a look in general. Well, any New York team is going to be scrutinized to the max for how they're playing. But this is a team with full of history. They're one of the original NBA teams, pretty much. They just have so much history in Madison Square Garden, and they haven't been able to make the playoffs since 2012. And this is a league, and this is a sport where it probably is the easiest to make the playoffs of all the major sports. No doubt, no doubt, and especially in a New York market where you would assume that a lot of players would want to come and play for you, especially at the notorious, infamous Mecca, Madison Square Garden, in which players claim to love and dream of playing on a court one day, uh, and dream of playing on that court one day, you know, except for the fact that players say that but don't necessarily take action upon it, meaning that they sign with the New York Knicks and become a member of the New York Knicks and actually play for that organization. And I think that's due to the scrutiny in which the Knicks have gotten because of ownership and management over the past decade. So we'll see where that goes with the New York Knicks and how their season progresses. But as of recent, Tom Thibodeau, who's a former uh, coach for the Chicago Bulls and Minnesota Timberwolves, he's eyeing this New York Knicks job despite the fact that players such as Julius Randle have come out and said that they believe that Mike Miller, who's the current interim head coach off the New York Knicks, has done a great job with his team. And personally, based on what the New York Knicks have in roster-wise and player-wise, I absolutely 100% agree with Julius Randle. You know, you traded away your best player at the deadline point-wise, Mark, uh, Marcus Morris, who was averaging almost 20 points. You know, what do you expect from a young team, uh, a young team in the New York Knicks, um, outside of maybe Julius Randle, but you got guys like Mitchell Robinson, Frank Ninilakina, uh R.J. Barrett, first-year rookie Kevin Knox, Alonzo Trier, a bunch of young guys who really don't have so much success in their career due to lack of experience, lack of organization, uh, organized coaching, proper instruction on how to improve upon the game and transition from college to NBA. Uh, I, I'm 100% on board with Julius Randle in the, in the statement saying that Mike Miller has done a great job. The Knicks went from the bottom seed to now the third to last seed. And at one point, they, were, they weren't they were making a push for the playoffs. But at one point, they were within three games of the Magic for the eighth seed. They've started to pull back just a bit, but they're coming back down to earth to where you knew they'd be. But th- they've been almost a 500 team as of late. They have won five of their last ten games. And they, they're just a tremendous team. They're playing to their full capabilities, which, granted, isn't that high. But they weren't playing to their full capabilities before. And now they are competing and saying, we're not done and out 
for the year, yes, they are, but long term, they've proven they want to they want to be back to where they know they could be. And the New York Knicks are now facing off against the Indiana Pacers right now. Uh, game started at seven thirty tonight. This game is being played at the Garden. Uh, the score right now, with nine and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter, is eighty three to seventy one. Uh, the Pacers. Uh, T.J. Warren is leading the Pacers with 22 points. Uh, former All-Star as of this past weekend, DeMontis uh, Sabonis, has 16 points and 11 rebounds. Leading scorer for the New York Knicks right now is Bobby Portis off the bench with 11 points. Second leading scorer is R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett, Barrett having a really bad shooting night, 5 for 14. Julius Randle as well having a bad shooting night, 1 of 8. So not really looking good for this New York Knicks team down the stretch with only nine and a half minutes left in the game, uh, losing by 15 points at the moment. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets right now, not right now, well, tomorrow actually, excuse me, will face off against the Charlotte Hornets. I believe this game is this game is in Charlotte. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets are three-and-a-half-point favorites in this game against Charlotte. Charlotte, another really, really bad team this year. Uh, again, a team that really doesn't have that much playoff hope or playoff aspirations. But down the stretch, maybe they'll be able to compete. But they are facing off against the Brooklyn Nets team, which is is favored kind of tight, kind of closely. It is a big game if you look at the big picture because Charlotte's only three seeds behind the Nets. So granted, it is a pretty big spread of six and a half games, but anything can still happen. So it is a big game that the Nets should have to win. Yeah, no, they definitely do have to win this game, Andrew, especially if they do want to compete down the stretch and stay within a playoff positional seating. Uh, so on that note, that'll do it for our New York Knicks segment, as well as our NBA second half of the season and NBA playoff uh, breakdown is gone. But now we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll be talking about the NCAA as well as the new CBA in the NFL. Welcome back to Review and Preview, folks. I'm your host, Kyle Russo, here alongside Andrew Scarpacci. we got about a half an hour left in this show, ladies and gentlemen. we still got a lot of action-packed news to talk about uh, in regards to the college ba- in regards to college basketball. Obviously, March Madness is approaching, as well as the new CBA for the NFL. And we're going to throw a little, a little something in there about the Daytona 500. Obviously, big news coming out this past week. Uh, Sunday or Saturday, I believe, uh, what happened when the Daytona 500 had went down. But first, the NCAA. Uh, so some big games we got up, some big games that we have going on uh, this weekend. You know, some along the lines of uh, the Kansas uh, Jayhawks are playing Baylor. Baylor's number one at the moment, and Kansas is number three at the moment. Uh, this game will take place Saturday at around 12 p.m., uh, Andrew, we have a caller. We have a caller right now? We have a caller. Caller, please state your name and where you are from. Hey, guys. It's Tom, and I am from Queens, New York. How's it going? Hey, Tom. How you doing? I'm doing good. Good. I'm actually I'm actually calling you from uh, my house up here in Connecticut, but I hope all is well. Um, look forward to being back on the show soon. Um, I know you guys were just talking about the Knicks, um, another – you know, safe to say, disappointing performance at home. Uh, but my question for you guys tonight, I have a couple. 
It's about college basketball. Obviously, the conference tournaments are near, uh, just about a week and a half, two weeks away. And then, my, you know, my first question for you guys is, the ACC is not as good as it was last year. Uh, there's a lot of teams falling off the map, and according to Joe Lenardi's bracketology right now, the Big 12 could potentially have, you know, eight to nine teams in the mix. The Big 10 is rumored to possibly crack double digits. So I'm, you know, looking at this saying the ACC had just four teams in Lenardi's bracket as where they're notorious for being the powerhouse conference. And then now we're looking tomorrow, we're seeing Kansas and Baylor. What What is going on this year with the Big 12? They're just dominating, and the ACC is falling off a little bit. Tom, to answer your question, uh, Facebook Live viewers, Tom is alluding to how the ACC uh, conference has fallen off and how the Big 12 is really taking a step up and how they've been able to perform this season. Uh, but along the lines, Tom, I, I really don't have an answer for you. I mean, going into this season, you could say based on the prospects that were acquired ranking-wise when it came to players in college basketball, you could make the assumption that you'd obviously see UNC in there, a well-coached Gonzaga who's always competing, maybe in a Virginia who's just coming off uh, NCAA championship, Duke as always, uh, maybe, in, maybe in Villanova with Jay Wright, uh, Villanova, I believe, right now sits at the 12th seed uh, in the top 25 at the moment. But Baylor and the Jayhawks, I did not see that. I don't think anybody saw this coming along the lines of other teams as well. In San Diego State at the number four seed. And then you got Dayton, I believe, at the number five seed as well. So there's been a lot of crazy things going into college basketball. And, Tom, something that I wanted to talk about with you personally, you know, along these lines of, craziness going into college basketball especially within the top 25 this season at least is this what the tournament is all about I mean I feel like we're seeing a lot of Cinderella stories throughout college basketball before March Madness even approaches meaning in the fact that who would have thought that Baylor would sit a number one seed who would have thought that can who would have thought that the Kansas Jayhawks would have been a three seed San Diego State a four and Dayton a five I mean that's absolutely insane but I feel like that's the that's just the explanation for college basketball, but I don't believe that we've ever seen something like this before. No, we haven't. And, you know, you look at the University of Dayton, and the Flyers have done a really good job. They have a lot of vets on that team, including Mike Sell. Uh, they're probably going to win their conference tournament. And then you look at Kansas, a team, yes, Azabuki's been there for a while, but you have young guys, and I like what Christian Braun has done this year off the bench for them, getting some good quality minutes. And Baylor has a good young team as well. And this is pretty much for the conference because, quite frankly, last year there were three ACC teams on that one line. And right now I think we get two Big 12 easily on that one line in Kansas and Baylor, depending on how the conference tournaments go. Um, you want to talk about the Cinderella stories? How about let's talk about one team that has not. UNC is arguably having their worst season in history. This team is 10-16. and 16. They are the worst team in the ACC with Cole Anthony. Lost to Notre Dame Monday night by one point. They continue to lose. They have Louisville on the road tomorrow, the 11th-ranked team. They're going to lose again. Well, Cole Anthony... UNC is the worst team. They're bad. 
Well, Cole Anthony, if I'm not mistaken, Cole Anthony, he has played the entire month of February. But he did miss a majority of December, and he did miss a majority of January as well. In total, he missed about, let's see, in total he missed about 12, 13 games on the season. So when you look at their record of, what would you say, I, I believe he was 10 and 16, Tom? So when he's been out for a ma- half of those games, and they've lost a majority of those games in which he has not played in, I mean, it really speaks to what he's able to do because Cole Anthony as a prospect uh, me and you both know this both, is that if Cole Anthony enters the draft this year, he will not be going past – he will 100% be going in the top five, no matter what team right. picks him. He's definitely a solid player, but I understand where you're coming from. North Carolina as a whole should not be as bad as they are, even without the star caliber player that Cole Anthony is. But, I mean, I think that's really the explanation when it comes down to it because we know that – Roy Williams is not a bad coach. That's why he's been in the job that he's in for so long. But Cole Anthony being out is definitely a major, major hurt to this North Carolina team. No doubt in my mind. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, unless they somehow pull a spectacular run in the ACC tournament, they're done for the year. Um, But, you know, they do have uh, one of the top recruiting classes again coming into next year. With the ACC right now, it's looking like Louisville, Duke, FSU, UVA, and then probably NC State sneaks in. And then, you know, from then on out, you're looking at Notre Dame and Syracuse. So, you know, there's still a lot of depth in this conference where the teams beat each other up. NC State blew out Duke on Monday night. Although Duke, the sixth-ranked team at 22-4, and they don't impress me either. Uh I understand they don't have Zion, but they look worse than they did towards the end of last year. Honestly, they were a better team without Zion last year than they are now. And it just really goes to show that anything could happen in this sport. I mean, you're looking at the rankings. Who would have thought Colorado would be in the rankings? Yeah. And the Big East is good, too. It's really great to see the Big East have four teams in the rankings. I mean, look at it. Villanova, Creighton, Seton Hall, Butler. Is it Butler or is it Providence at the moment? I think it's Providence at the moment. It's not Providence at it's... the moment, no. they. Uh, no, Butler is ranked 21st. And, you know, the, the team that's really surprised me a lot this year is West Virginia out of the Big 12 because they – I know they've dropped a few spots in the rankings, but they have a very young team, too, and they were not good at all last year. They're currently ranked 17th. Um, And the way things are going right now, Texas Tech and Virginia, the two teams from last year's national championship game, are not in the rankings. In fact, three of the teams from last year's Final Four are currently not ranked, including Michigan State. That's just nuts, to be honest with you. The only ranked team... From last year's Final Four is Auburn at number 13. It just really goes to show that anything could happen. And this year's tournament is going to be even wackier because there's really – last year we knew that the number one team overall, it was a toss-up between, you know, teams like Duke, Gonzaga, Virginia, sure, UNC. But this year there's really no defined number one team, probably Baylor right now, but there's no one team that you can say they are the team to beat in the NCAA tournament. 
especially if Baylor loses tomorrow. You don't think that Gonzaga would formally take that place? I think that even though Gonzaga is the number two seed, I could, I see them as the, I see them as like the cream of the crop, the the team to beat, just because of the fact that Baylor does have one loss on the season. I don't think makes them obviously the number one seed based on record. They lost one game in the beginning of the season, really early. In fact, I think it was their second game of the season in which they lost and have not lost the game since Baylor. But I think that Gonzaga would be the team that you could really stand behind and say, man, I could pick that team to easily go to the top four, the final four. Well, Petrusev is fantastic. He's their best player, averaging like 17, 18 points a game, 17 and a half actually. But I look up to down on this Gonzaga roster. You're right. There's seven guys averaging over 10 points a game. They're, they have a lot of depth. However, I don't think match them up against a Baylor or a Kansas or even a Duke or Kentucky. Like, I don't really think there's a defined, like the one year Kentucky didn't lose all year. Or last year, if Zion Williamson was healthy, Duke probably would have been the clear number one team in the tournament. I so, guess. yeah. What's up, Andrew? I could see San Diego winning all the way and then losing in like the first or second round of the tournament, like because they everyone's been expecting them at some point to come back down to earth and they just haven't. They're still undefeated. No one can believe that. And I could see them winning all the way, winning the conference, then early, early on in the tournament falling down. I agree because they don't have a lot of depth. They don't play a lot of guys. Malachi Flynn is their leading scorer, and. I'll be honest with you, before this season, I didn't know who Malachi Flynn was. I didn't. So, you're looking with the rankings are, with the, with the way the rankings are right now, it's going to be Baylor, Gonzaga, Kansas, and San Diego State as the top four seeds, followed by Dayton, Duke, Maryland, and Florida State on that two line. And Penn State, the ninth seed, just lost uh, earlier this week to Illinois. So I'm not too, you know, Louisville's been up and down all year. So is Kentucky. So there's really no one team that really impresses me right now, except you're right. Baylor, Gonzaga, San Diego State, and Kansas is the four one seeds. And then there's everybody else. But out of those four teams, I can't pick one and tell you they're the team that, you know, Jay Bill has said it best. Like this year is honestly, it's a toss up. So, with that being said, uh, my last thought before I let you guys go, because I know you got to wrap up the show with the last segment. Um, I don't know what it is, but something's telling me, because obviously you guys broadcast the show at LIU with the NEC games going on, and I don't know what it is, but something's telling me that these weaker conference champions could pull an upset. I mean, we saw a 16 upset of one just two years ago. You know what I'm saying? So I think if there's another upset like that, I like, you know, because last year we didn't see a Loyola Chicago. This year we could see a conference winner get on a roll and start winning some games. So that's what I'll leave you guys with. Keep that in mind. Uh, heading into these conference tournaments. We'll see what happens. Uh, my Fighting Irish are, you know, they're hanging on by a thread. They got a big win, but we'll see. They have the weaker portion of their schedule coming up. But uh, 
Yeah, thank you so much for letting me call in, guys. Our first ever Facebook Live on our new Facebook page. So congrats on that. Yes, Tom, and thank you for calling in and being a part of tonight's show, talking some uh, college hoop with us, all right? All right, sounds good. I'll see you guys soon. All right, have a good night, Tom. And that was Tom Scavetta talking some college basketball with us. Uh, so a great, a great segment, a great segment. Tom provided some excellent insight uh, upon college basketball. Obviously, his March Madness is approaching. Talking to us a little bit about the breakdown and what a cluster this season has been because of the fact that there really is no guarantee this year. You know, in years prior, you would say Duke or North Carolina was a guaranteed in a Final Four. Now you look at the top four seedings and you say to yourself, you have Baylor at one, Gonzaga at two, you have Kansas at three, and you have San Diego State University at four. And then even better, number five, Dayton. And you say to yourself, where's the guarantee in this? And the answer is there's no guarantee. And I think that furthermore only makes college basketball even better than it already is because it's anybody's game. Upon Cinderella's story, upon Cinderella's uh, story. You know, Tom had brought up in the past that Loyola Chicago uh, is a Cinderella story team. And, and we could have a bunch of those this year. A bunch of those this year with the fact that there's really no guaranteed team. But on that note, that's going to do it for our talk about college basketball. And we're going to move into our next topic of the NFL. Now, Andrew, the NFL came out with a new CBA uh, yesterday. It was reported by Adam Schefter. And under the current CBA proposal, uh, seven teams from each conference will make the playoffs with only one bye per conference. It will go into effect this season. Now, this is a proposal. Let me remind you. This is not set in stone. This is a proposal, meaning that it has gone through owners, but it still has to go through players. And I think there's a lot. There's going to be a lot of controversy when it comes to the players, and I really don't believe that players are going to agree to this. Solely on behalf of, yes, by adding a 17th game, what you're doing is you're taking a game away from the preseason. Yes, that helps ownership because that means more money in ticket sales adding a 17th game. What this does is it takes a week away from players that are stars, studs, you know they're making the team. It takes a week's away rest from them. What it also does it it makes you more susceptible to injury because you're playing that 17th game now. On top of the fact that with this 17th game, the new CBA also states that players will earn a max increase of only $250,000 for this 17th game of the season, which is minimalistic. It's chump change compared to these stud players and what they're actually making as their salary. So I don't know if a lot of players are going to be on board with this personally, Andrew. Yeah, I could definitely agree with that because they are more susceptible to injury. The amount of pay that they're getting, the ratio that they're getting per game is not equal to the 250000 If anything, it should be whatever you're getting, divide it by 16, and then you get that much extra for the 17th game. I would think that would be fair, and maybe they would do it for that, but then ownership would lose a lot of money that way. And it really all just come down to money because... Less um, less buys in the first round for teams. It would be one instead of two, so that's more money for ticket sales and uh, broadcasting rights and revenue you get from there. No one really watches the preseason that much, so that's one extra game. That's tremendous more amount of people that would watch a game versus a preseason game. More people that would go to it. The tickets are more expensive. And um, 
think about all the players who are trying out for teams. Now they have less of a shot to make the team, so they wouldn't want that either. That's very true. That's very true. Um, You know, that's something that's going to be going on through throughout the minds of players and obviously ownership as the season progresses, as we are approaching, not not approaching football season, but, you know, along those lines, we're, we're getting into the combine this weekend. We're getting into free agency starting March 18th. And then in a blink of an eye, it's going to be, it's going to be August. And, and now we're going to potentially be seeing football games in August that actually matter, which will be pretty crazy as well. Um, if the players do agree to it, of course. But some other parts of the CBA uh, in which they have added, which I don't necessarily agree with, um, the proposed CBA reduces penalties for players who test positive for THC. If you don't know what that is, that's it's marijuana. Eliminating any game suspension strictly for positive tests. Now, personally, I think this is one of the worst things that you can do for the game. What you're basically saying is you're basically allowing a free-for-all with players to basically enabling them to use a drug. Yes, which if medicated could help your body with soreness and injury, there's no doubt. But uh, leisurely using it, you know, before games, after games, I mean, it's going to start to become a bad habit. We've seen careers be ruined because of drugs like marijuana. Like, look at Josh Gordon. He was an up-and-rising stud with the Cleveland Browns, and drugs ultimately, marijuana ultimately ruined his career. Even with the Patriots, when he got a second chance, they had to release him because he had a second stint with it. On the flip side, I don't necessarily agree with it either, but there have been players whose careers were made from it. Lawrence Taylor... There are a lot of players who could only play when they were on it, drugs of some sort. And you hear it from a lot of people from both in politics and in sports about how it does help you do better in whatever you're doing. I don't, I can't attest for that, but I, I, I have no clue. But there's been a lot of pressure from players and, and people just around the country and around the league who have been fighting for it and the NFL gave in. I don't think this is an this is an aspect of the game in which needed to be addressed or which needed to be changed. I don't my, this is my point of perspective. You've literally gotten players kicked out of the NFL for this reason, right? Now you're allowing players to basically not be penalized at all and basically say you could use it whenever. I mean that's that's the that's a complete hypocrisy of what you've been stating for so long and to just give in like that is just insane. Now if a player had dealt with injury or uh, had some sort of problem or issue and it was medicated in some way in which was prescribed by a professional doctor, then I could say to yourself, yeah, yeah, okay, that, that should be warranted and that player should not be fine. But you're basically warranting a, a hall pass on players to basically, you know, and enabling them and allowing it to use it leisurely, which I think is only going to further hurt the game. I don't see this necessarily improving the game at all. Apparently, Lawrence Taylor would, he would uh, stay up. He wouldn't sleep the night before a game. He would show up five minutes before kickoff, and for him it helped. I mean, maybe one of a few, or maybe it would help everyone. I We have no clue. It could completely destroy the game, or there will be a million Lawrence Taylors out there after this. I feel like <laughs> this is the going to be like a PD of football. It's it's. Yeah. It's going to be something again. I don't know what I don't know what THC necessarily does to the body or how it enables your 
performance. But what I do know is from what I've heard players speak upon in the past is that it does help the dealing with the pain and recovering of the body. I understand that, and I'm all on board for that. But I think that needs to be, and maybe this is something you know written along the uh, small words upon the uh, jurisdiction in which this uh, new rule has now been imposed upon the NFL and might further progress in what might happen later down the line uh, if this rule does get put into play. Because, again, these are all proposals by the CBA. This isn't necessarily going to happen. This is all proposals. Maybe this is a way to get the players to agree to it. Maybe the owners want the 17th game and the league wants the 17th game and the players want to be able to use marijuana. So you're saying kind of a a pull and a tug, like you got to play a 17th game, but... Uh, you want us to play a 17th game, so let us use something that will help us get through it. Maybe along those lines. Maybe that was the process and thinking. Uh, I don't want to disagree, but we'll see where this new CBA change proposal, uh, how this all works out. Because as Adam Schefter reported last night, some of these CBA proposals could take an effect as soon as this upcoming season for 2020. Uh, other news in the NFL that's going on. Uh, players such as Damon Snacks Harrison, former Giant and New York Jet, uh, was a member of the New York Lions, uh, New York Lions, Detroit Lions, was released uh, yesterday or this morning, I believe, uh, as well as Jordan Lee, Jordan Reed of the Washington Redskins. And the Redskins have kind of looked to reface their entire franchise. Now they've released uh, Paul Richardson, massive contract receiver, Josh Norman, massive cornerback contract receive, uh, cornerback contract, as well as Jordan Reed, who is was a good tight end in this league, just struggled to get healthy throughout the years prior uh, that he's been released as well. Some other players that have been released, two players by the Chicago Bears, Taylor Gabriel and Prince Mukamara. Taylor Gabriel, speedster, wide receiver, and Prince Mukamara, also former New York Giant, cornerback for the Chicago Bears, have been released today. In other news, there's been news around the Cincinnati Bengals, a couple things actually. Uh, It is believed that A.J. Green wants out potentially of Cincinnati, and we'll see where that leads leads the Bengals in the future because leading into my next question here, could we potentially see Joe Burrow doing what Eli Manning did back in 2004 and get out of playing for the Bengals as Eli did for the San Diego Chargers at the moment, Andrew? Could we potentially see him pulling something on draft night and getting – because we – I, I think we could both agree upon the fact that Joe Burrow is guaranteed number one by the Bengals. We see the talks between the Bengals, you know, looking to move on from Andy Dalton and moving towards the direction of Joe Burrow. But uh, the statements in which Joe Burrow has made has made it seem like he does not want to play for this franchise. I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, he pretty much knows where he's going. Everyone else pretty much knows where he's going. And I think he just he accepted it but he's saying it in a way that people don't really that like he's not overly excited about it but he wants to play in the NFL and he's going to take if if you can be the first overall draft pick you're going to get the biggest signing bonus so I can't imagine him being too upset about it. Yeah, I can't imagine him being too upset about it either but knowing the other places in which he could potentially play at, you know, that do need quarterbacks, uh Carolina Panthers potentially moving on from uh Cam Newton, that's a better situation than the Bengals. The Miami Dolphins, you know, obviously maybe not a better situation, but better place to play in. Uh, the L.A. Chargers, maybe a better, uh, LA, yeah, L.A. Chargers, a better team scenario, a better place to play in potentially. So I'm not going to rule it out. I'm not going to rule it out. Do I see it happening? Probably not, but I'm not going to rule it out. And quickly, uh, with the remaining three minutes that we have left here 
on review and preview, a review and preview. Just a recap of what happened this past weekend at the Daytona 500. Uh, race car driver Ryan Newman um, got into a major, major, major accident on the track. This uh, this incident was caused by the actual winner of this um, the of the Daytona American 500 race. of this race, uh, Denny Hamlin, uh, who won first uh, after Ryan Newman had led by a lap, who led the final lap. Uh, probably could have come out victorious, Ryan Newman, but uh, Denny Hamlin had caused Ryan Newman to crash into the wall, and then Ryan Newman was then smashed by C. LaJoy after Hamlin had made contact with Newman, uh, leaving Newman's car to fly through the air, uh, spin in circles, and light on fire, and eventually halt to a burning crash. Ryan Newman unbelievable uh had been in the hospital for two three days and was able to walk up on his own feet out of the hospital uh early evening wednesday uh, maybe late afternoon so unbelievable very 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 scary story fortunate to be alive fortunate to walk away with what seemingly looks like no injuries whatsoever to a, one of the most horrific crashes yeah. that I think that we've seen since Dale Earnhardt. And we know how that injury, how that crash went. Dale Earnhardt uh, passing, I believe, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, Dale Earnhardt had passed in a in a race car. Um, the Daytona 500 in the final lap. In the final lap as yeah. well. Crashing his car and passing. Uh, not being fortunate enough um, to survive such a horrific event. Yeah, so the race was Sunday. After 20 laps, it was canceled and then restarted late afternoon on Monday. And then that was when all that happened. And there was nothing on Ryan Newman at the time. There was like, we'll get updates for you, um, uh, status pending or like injuries pending. And then it wasn't until later that we realized what happened. It was right before the time that he got released from the hospital that we knew that he was okay. For a day, no one really knew much of anything. And then, so all of Monday night through Tuesday, um, decent amount of Wednesday, he was in the hospital with barely little information about what was going on. So it was a miracle when everyone realized that he was coming back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And on that note, after such a horrific uh, story and segment, to end off on a good note, Andrew, any final takes, any final words that you want to say in regards to anything that's going on throughout your mind right now in the sports world that you'd like to say? Maybe on behalf of your Yankees. In the World Series this year. You calling it? I, I know I know that you wanted to talk about it a little bit. I know that we oh, kind of yeah. skipped over it, but you think they're going all the way? They have the offense to do it. They have the deaf pieces. If someone's not producing, they have multiple people to either call up or bring up, replace. The pitching will get there. Right now it seems a little shaky, but we have the pieces to go all the way. I think it's the top bullpen in baseball. Once it hits the seventh inning, it's pretty much game over. As a Yankee fan, I completely agree, but I don't want to jinx it. So on that note, That'll be it from us here at Review and Preview, folks. I'm your host, Kyle Russo, alongside my co-host and engineer for tonight, Andrew Scarpacci. Thank you all for tuning in, and see you next week where we will be on at the same time, 8 to 10 o'clock. Make sure to stream us on Facebook and tune in here to our podcast here on The Anchor. Uh, You're listening to Review and Preview. Good night, everyone.